the commonality, I think, is that people who refuse to take a stand allow someone else to win, right? When you allow that fear or whatever's holding you back um, to, to, uh, to win, right? Whatever it is that you were afraid of wins. And in this case, the, the perpetrator of the fraud, bad guy, bad guy wins. Hi, everybody. Welcome to a brand new episode of Fuck Fear. Thank you so much for joining us today. This episode I have been thinking about for a long time, and I'm finally at the point where it is it is great and the timing is great to record it. Today, we are talking about fear of being a whistleblower. I have been thinking about this because recently we've seen a case of whistleblower um, in the Theranos case, and we'll talk about some other cases as well. But I always wonder what whistleblowers go through, the emotions they go through, before they actually decide to blow the whistle. So joining me today is a whistleblower lawyer. I guess that's a great way to describe you, right, Mitch? <laughs> Mitch Kreidler. He um, is a lawyer. He's been a lawyer for more than 20 years. He's devoted his law practice exclusively to representing whistleblowers, primarily in Tam suits under the False Claims Act. Mitch is a principal at Kreinler Associ Associates, uh, he established his law firm in 2000 in Philadelphia, but he's recently, re well, recently relocated to Austin, but um, had a satellite office in Austin. So are you fully, are you full-time in Austin now or still have an office in Houston? I'm full-time in Austin. I have uh, an office still in Houston and um, I have lawyers who work with me who are in uh, Philadelphia and New York area. So awesome. we're a really small multi-state national firm. Yeah, but you do great, significant work. So Mitch and I, there is a, a, a special mutual person that we know. I used to work with Mitch's brother, Eric, in television years ago. And I recently met Mitch like a year ago. And the last name is so it's it's not it's it's not a common last name. And so as I'm talking to you, Mitch, I'm like, huh, I know another crime learn, a guy named Eric. And Mitch goes, that's my brother. I'm like, oh, my God, the world is too small. So I'm glad I'm we so had. I'm glad you didn't hold that against me. <laughs> really well, I had just that. met you, so you know. <laughs> still time. Well, welcome to the podcast, Mitch. I am really excited for you to be here, and I'm excited to talk to you about some of the cases that you've handled, and then other cases that we've seen that have been historical cases um, that I love to talk to you about. But first, you know how I start each podcast with asking my guests, "What is your greatest fear?" I really want to give you a great answer. And I'm going to tell you that most of my fears are physical fears. You know, standing at the top of a hill before you go down a ski slope or thinking about the idea of bungee jumping, which I've, I've never done. Um, I, was, I was raised, I think my parents raised my brother and I to be sort of uh, with a lot of self-confidence. And so life just came at you and you just handled it and moved on and assumed that every obstacle was a new opportunity. And so um, I think they didn't really, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't grow up with any real fears, fear of doing anything. Um, I guess I never really thought maybe it's, maybe it's naive at times, um, but my fears were all physical. They were like real, like what I would think of as real fears, like standing at the top of a building thinking, oh, that's a little too close for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, those are significant. <laughs> Hopefully you're not in any of those situations. <laughs> <laughs> you as I can be. Yeah. Well, so 
fear of being a whistleblower, I want to talk to you first about how you even got into this line of work, with, which is very specific. Um, so tell me just a little bit about your, your beginnings and your practice, um, your beginnings in your fields, and then how you navigated into becoming, um, uh, how, how you uh, came to represent just whistleblowers. So um, the, the statute that we deal with is called the False Claims Act. It was first signed into law by Abraham Lincoln, but it was updated by Congress and signed, re-signed into law um, by, by Ronald Reagan. So this is mid-80s. And um, that's about when I started my law career. And you know, obviously, they didn't teach this in law school because it just wasn't a thing at the time. And I read about it, literally read about it in a news story. And was intrigued because at the time I was kind of in a dead end job at a big law firm yeah. where I was a cog in the machinery and not really enjoying myself. Um, and this kind of this really lit my passion because it was it was complex litigation, which had been my background as a lawyer. Um, but I could represent individuals who had a real stake in something and, and we could do something really good in the public interest. We could go out and recover money of which the government had been defrauded. And it just, it just felt good and it felt right. And so I ended up um, taking a job with a law firm um, that was doing that in Washington, D.C., and there weren't very many at the time. And so that got my career going. And then my wife's career moved to different cities, and so we did that, and I started my own practice back in 2000 um, and have been doing it since and have been uh, loving every minute of it. Well, tell me about your very first case and, and uh, what that was, what the um, what the, the situation was that you uh, the for the person you represented, um, and just tell me how it unfolded. So the first case that I really remember, because I will tell you, there's a lot of cases that don't go anywhere in this process, yeah. um, which is which is something we can talk about as far as whistleblowers being concerned about being a whistleblower. Um, the first case I remember was a guy who worked for a railroad. And he discovered uh, one of the things, you learn a lot of esoteric details in my, in my world. One of the things I learned is that railroad crossings are maintained and renovated by railroad companies. So when the government wants to improve one, they pay the railroad company to do the work. Railroad company goes out, fixes the railroad crossing, and they get reimbursed by the government. Well, he uncovered a scheme that involved shell companies and internal sales that the railroad would use to inflate the cost of the materials. And then when they got reimbursed, they got paid two or three times what they should have been getting paid. And so he blew the whistle on that. And he went and filed a lawsuit. Um, and as you might imagine, um, the railroad didn't take too keenly to that. Mm -hmm. And he lived in kind of what I would consider a railroad town, right? Where the railroad was very big. There were lots of employees. And he suffered all kinds of retaliation. Yeah. Um, uh, windows in his house were broken. His tires were slashed. Uh, he couldn't find a job. He had to start feeding his kids on food stamps and getting Medicaid to you know, take care of their healthcare needs. He got yelled at in public. Uh, he got ostracized. He lost friends. Um, but the case ended up being successful. And um, I think it was about a $7 million recovery. And so the whistleblower gets a share of that. And he was able to move and remake his life. And um, sort of start all over again. But he he and his wife, it was really interesting because why would you go through this? Why, yeah. would, you, why would you want your tire slash and your kids living on Medicaid and food stamps? And he and his wife uh, were very, very devout people of faith. 
And they said, you know, this is, this is our path and it's right and it's righteous and we believe in what we're doing. And um, because it's right, we can't not do it. And um, so they put up with all of that in order to make sure that the fraud was brought to light. Yeah. Well, and it seems like an, uh, that may be one of the common denominators with people who decide to bring what they see as wrongdoing to, to the attention of management. But I imagine that it, it's not that easy. There are several layers that you go through of management, emotions, and all those things. Um, and so it, it, it's, it's a very interesting thing when they finally get to the point of making the decision. So I wonder about all the decisions that they make leading up to the final decision of actually doing something. So in the cases that you have dealt with, what is that process like for, for your clients? So it probably won't surprise you to know that you know, everybody's path is a little different, right? Yeah. Um, nobody's is identical. And, and there are some whistleblowers who have a very easy path, right? They were at the company, they discovered fraud, they reported it, or they didn't report it, and they leave. And then they find someone like me and they go after it. Yeah. Um, and maybe there's no repercussions. Maybe there's, it's, it's, it's just a blip on their life and they just file this lawsuit and they don't worry about it. Um, but for a lot of people, and I think the one, maybe the two characteristics that, that seem to really um, be common among whistleblowers is that number one, they are very loyal to the company, which is ironic, right? Because, because they're then going to turn on the company, but they're very loyal to the company. They believe in the company and they believe that the company is going to do things right. And so initially when they discover this problem, they go to the company and they say, Oh, look what I found. We need to fix this. And eventually maybe going through two or three levels of hierarchy over time, they find out that the company's not going to fix it. And then suddenly their performance review, which had been fives all their entire career, suddenly become twos. Mm -hmm. And suddenly they're not getting the prime assignments and they're being ostracized at work. They're not being invited to meetings. Uh, maybe their colleagues are passing them by. Maybe someone with less seniority gets moved into a nicer office and they're left in a junky cubicle. Um, or literally, maybe they're placed in a basement office or something like that. And so the company eventually tries to push them out. Um, and so the journey can be very difficult for a lot of whistleblowers. I knew one whistleblower um, who, you know, felt like he had to do this. And uh, his wife was not supportive. And she said, you need this job. We need, we need you to have an income. You can't do this. And if you do this, I won't stand by you. Wow. And he said, I have to do this. This is, this is what's right. And um, she ended up divorcing him. Wow. Um, now, there probably were other issues in the relationship. Yeah. <laughs> but um, that was the tipping point. And he, he felt strongly enough about it to, to blow up his family, in effect. Yeah. Um, so it's difficult. And I, and I think what, you know, one of, the, one of the commonalities, and so, right, this is a different kind of fear than a lot of the things you've talked about on this podcast before. Um, but the commonality, I think, is that people who refuse to take a stand allow someone else to win, right? When you allow that fear or whatever's holding you back, um, to, to, uh, to win, right? Whatever it is that you were afraid of wins. And in this case, the, the perpetrator of the fraud, bad guy, bad guy wins if somebody doesn't report it. Yeah. Because in this country, um, uh, whistleblowers are the first line of defense. They may be the only line of defense about stopping bad stuff. You know, we, uh, we talk in the airports about, you know, see something, say something. Well, that's exactly what we 
do with whistleblowers. If nobody says anything and everybody just puts their head down and lets the status quo continue, bad stuff continues to happen. And so whistleblowers are, um, they really are heroes in a lot of ways. Um, If you think about, if you think about, you know, when you think about a hero, maybe you think about a first responder, but uh, my, my image in my head is always the, the person who runs into a burning building to try to save somebody, right? Who just instantly goes and does that. Well, a whistleblower is really different because the building may be on, on fire, figuratively speaking, but it's not an emergency where they just do it. They get to think about it and they get to think about their options. And so this is a long-term kind of heroic act where they have to choose to be that hero you know, and just like the person running into the building, usually when that person gets interviewed, they said, oh, I'm not a hero. Anybody would have done this. Anybody in my position would have done the same thing. And I think most whistleblowers feel that same way, that this is what's right. Of course, somebody would, would do the right thing. Um, but as we know, not everybody does. Not everybody yeah. runs into that burning building. Not everybody um, has that moral compass that says, I, I got to do this, uh, no matter the risk to, to my well-being. Yeah. I imagine like the moral dilemma that they, you know, that they wrestle with and and deciding to actually say something in the in the cases that you've dealt with, how much time generally passes between when they recognize something and and the time it takes them to go and say something to the time they feel like there was no remedy to that problem. And then the time it takes to like contact somebody like you to do something about it. So that also is not, there's no standard to that, right? Yeah. There are some people who maybe they detect that problem at their job for three or four years, but they stay in the job during that time. And then when they leave the job, that then frees them in a way that allows them to report this without as, as, as putting as much on the line, right? It yeah. allows them to get to a position um, where they're safer, so to speak, um, and then to go report the fraud and try to stop it. Yeah. There are some people who do this, you know, while they're at the company, while they're reporting it. Um, it, it won't surprise you to know that most of these people are either in, in the throes of trying to get out of the company or to find another job. It's very rare that the whistleblower stays there during the, comp- during, during the whole ordeal, um, um, especially during the course of the lawsuit, which can take years and years. Um, but I have had clients who went back to work for the bad guy um, during their case. In other words, they left they filed a lawsuit, which the company doesn't know about at the time, because all of this stuff is done under cover of darkness. The lawsuits are filed under seal. The government investigation um, is it's, they don't out the whistleblower during the investigation. And the whistleblower left, went to took another job. And a headhunter called him and said, oh, we have an opportunity at this, at this company. Wow. And my client called me and said, can I take this job? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> take that job. Go, go take that job. But I will tell you, once their suit became public, after it was successful, the company started uh, retaliating against them. It was just so stupid, so stupid. Right. And um, yeah. That just, just validifies, can't... like, it, it just, I mean, validates what the person was accusing the company of. Yeah. Like, like. Yeah, literally an, an, a regional official was sent by the corporate office to basically berate this person in front of their employees because they were the head of the department um, to kick them out of their cubicle so the regional person could sit in and to just tell all the employees what an idiot this person was. That's so ridiculous. Um, it was absolutely insane. And it was after the case was almost done. Um, and we actually we actually amended our lawsuit to file a retaliation claim 
And they paid significant money for that because we then worked out a severance deal. Um, and like, you know, their lawyers, I mean, I think their lawyers were aghast because yeah. that is not what you want your client doing when you're closing down a settlement. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was unbelievable. And whistleblowers, wow. you know, it's tough being a whistleblower. You never know how it comes back to bite you. Well, yeah. And, you know, just thinking of hearing that, I, I you know, the, I, I wonder about the amount of fear that somebody in that situation faces, knowing about what they're doing behind the scenes, but still trying to work for the company, stay in there, have a sort of good attitude, still show up and showing up in physical form as well as psychological, emotional. I mean, that feels very, very heavy and very scary every single day. So how mm-hmm. did, how do your clients balance, like how have they balanced that, um, that emotional dilemma of the fear and also knowing that what they're doing in their mind is the right thing? Sometimes they start doing what they think is the right thing and then they see what happens, right? And so the yeah. emotional yeah. toll is very tough. Being yeah. ostracized at work, um, being uh, the stress level of having your boss call you in and tell you to knock it off or your job's at risk. Right. Um, you know, and then you're thinking, oh, how do I make my car payment and how am I going to pay my rent? Um, so it's, it's very stressful and it takes an emotional toll on a lot of people. Um, and I think, I think like everything, right, this, there may be some, but some people who are truly fearful of, of blowing the whistle, of, of, of calling out fraud. But I think most of the time, it's a risk assessment, right? It's right. let me assess the risk to my career, to me, to my family, um, versus the reward of doing this. And, you know, for some people, that reward is doing the right thing. Um, you know, I, I had one client who he was asked during an interview, why did you do this if the repercussions could be so horrible? Yeah. And he said, I have a very open relationship with my children, who I think were teenagers at the time. And he said, they knew I had seen problems at work. And I knew that if I didn't do this, I would lose all moral authority with them. And I could never say to them, stand up for what you think is right. Because they would say, well, you didn't. He goes, I just knew I had to do that, not only for myself, but, but for my kids and for my relationship. With my kids. So that was his driving force. And the, the False Claims Act, which is this statute that we talked about, is a bounty statute. So it tries to level the playing field and incentivize a whistleblower who knows of fraud against the federal government to come forward because there is a potential pot of money because the whistleblower gets a percentage and historically it's about 17 or 18% of what the government recovers. Okay. So part of that reasonable risk assessment might be, Hey, this is a hundred thousand dollar fraud and Oh, I might be able to recover $17,000 if I'm right. That's not a lot. That's not money to retire on, right? That's not money yeah. that's going to change your life. And by the way, you're going to pay taxes on it. So it's even less. Yeah. Um, and, and then you're going to share it with, with someone like me, a lawyer who is representing you on a contingent fee basis and who's basically working for free unless the case is successful. So, you know, for the most part, people who are going to do this are, going to, are really going to do this in a big way. You're going to look for a big fraud. You're going to look for a multi-million dollar fraud that in effect makes it worth your while. If you're worried about that. Some people, you know, as I said, like with that one client, he didn't care about the money. He really literally didn't care about money. He just thought we've got to stop this and we got to nip this in the bud because it's going to get worse. Yeah. Have you had some clients through the process or along the way somewhere back out and because of fear and 
And I wonder if, if there's an, if the answer is yes to that, are we going to hear about some firm or some large company later down the line who's doing some wrongdoing um, and, and that whistleblower may have regret? So, so answer the first question. Uh, have you had situations where somebody has backed out because of fear? I've had one situation where I know they backed down, deciding that it just wasn't worth it. Yeah. That they, and, and by the way, there have also been times I've advised people not to go forward, right? One of the things that, so, you know, you introduced me as an attorney, right? Well, we also, you know, if you remember what the, the signs over in the attorney's offices always said, counselor at law. Yeah. And that counseling function, I think, is really important in this context because a lot of times in the first instance, I'm going to help you figure out if it makes sense for you to do this. Because one of the things that I also find about whistleblowers is that they're very rule bound, right? And not all rules are the same and not all crimes are the same. Um, you know, and, and jaywalking and murder may both be crimes, but they're not of the same type of crime and the punishments are certainly not the same. And so, you know, in the False Claims Act world and in the whistleblowing world, if you've got something that's jaywalking and it really bugs you, then, you know, you may not want to blow up your whole career over jaywalking. But if it's closer to committing murder, because this is a multi-million dollar scheme that's ripping off the government, then maybe the calculus changes. And sometimes a whistleblower has a hard time telling the difference between the two. Yeah. And so someone like me can help counsel them to figure out how do we figure out what the risks are? You know, what are the risks to your career? Is it reasonable? Is, is, is this case likely to succeed? You know, what's the experience here with these kinds of allegations? Um, and so we can help them work through that fear, right? And sometimes their first question is, can my employer sue me if I do this? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, usually employers don't come after employees, um, usually, because if, if you're accused of a multi-million dollar fraud, it doesn't look good if you're going after the whistleblower. Right. But, but they do attack the whistleblower. And the first thing they told the government is, oh, that whistleblower is unreliable. They were a bad employee. So they are going to take that whistleblower to task. Um, they rarely will actually sue an employee, but it's not unheard of. And, you know, the unfortunate, the unfortunate reality is anybody can file a lawsuit. It's not really very difficult to do. Right. I think a lot of people who haven't been involved in lawsuits are shocked to find that out, that you can file any kind of lawsuit you want. No one stops you at the courthouse and looks at your lawsuit and says, you can't do that. Yeah. Um, anything can be filed. Kind of um, wish that like, some things would, would that we kind of wish some things would be turned away at the door, but. <laughs> there's no, there's no gatekeeper, right? You get to yeah. file your lawsuit and then the process, the, the process continues. But just like if you're walking down the street, can someone mug you? The answer is yes, right? There's nothing to stop yeah. them from mugging you necessarily. Um, now, do they get in trouble for that? Are they successful in getting whatever it is they wanted? Um, probably not. And it's, un it's unlikely if a, if a company sues you. I mean, think about it. Usually, what are they going to sue you for? They're going to sue you for theft of trade secret secrets. They're going to sue you for taking company documents. Um, and if you're on the jury where that happens, and the argument is, uh, yeah, we had to pay multi, we had to pay millions of dollars to the government for fraud, and it occurred because they stole our documents. <laughs> Jury, award us damages because this, this whistleblower stole our documents that resulted in us having to pay back the government. You're not gonna you're not gonna let that company win. Right. So it is done to harass, it is done as a retaliation tool, but 
in the end, it's not successful, but it is stressful, right? It would be set stressful right. if you sued them. Yeah. It's so interesting to me that companies take the path of retaliation rather than just fixing the problem, because it seems like retaliation takes so much more energy because you have to plan it, you have to scheme, you have to strategize, you have to think about doing something against the, the person that is accusing you when in fact it, it might be cheaper and, and um, less effort based than, than to just fix the problem. So why are these companies who have been in history brought down by one or two whistleblowers or a group of them, why is it, why is it more difficult for them to just fix the problem rather than go after their employees or, or, or take the time to investigate the problem? No, I think I think the, the I think you're working maybe from an incorrect premise, right? It's not it's not cheaper to fix the problem. So, mm-hmm. you know, there have been a lot of pharmaceutical frauds where pharmaceutical companies have paid hundreds of millions of dollars for the way they marketed a drug or for the way mm-hmm. they charged the government for a drug. And if you're making hundreds of millions, billions of dollars uh, from a new drug, from a new product, in effect. It's not cheaper to fix it and stop doing that, gotcha. right? Because all that revenue goes away. So it is way easier to just ostracize that person and try to cut them out of the company. Gotcha. But, but the actual, what I really don't understand is instead of retaliating, why not show that person some love? Why yeah. not increase their salary, thank them for their effort and move them to a different part of the company and then double their salary and give them the corner office, you know, move them away from the front. Right. So they're so not silence them in a way. Yeah. You know, mm. now a lot of those people wouldn't tolerate that. Right. There's a lot of people who would say, wow, I did the right thing. Look, the company is so happy. I got rewarded. This is great. Um, but to me, that's the part I don't understand because that would be cheaper. Right. Than, yeah. the, than retaliating against someone and pushing them into a into a into a suit where they're going to whistleblow and then you're going to have to pay hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, that's a very interesting point is. And so many, so many instances where there have been um, uh, uh, efforts of the profit, the financial profit that's involved, where fixing the problem is more expensive. So talk about that uh, just a little bit, how these companies avoid fixing the problem because it is so profitable and, and they make, they're making millions, you know, however often, yearly, quarterly, wh- whatever the case is. It's always about the money, right? I mean, yeah. you know, the, the bank robber, Willie Horton, when he was captured, he was asked, why do you rob banks? And he said, well, that's where they keep the money. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, it's, it's always about the money. And yeah. um, in recent years, so this statute originally was signed into law during the Civil War to employ private attorneys, private individuals to go after war profiteers during the Civil War because the Justice Department wasn't as big as it was at the time. The government was devoting all its resources to the war. It didn't have lawyers and prosecutors and investigators to go after this stuff. Um, and it was, it was mostly intended to attack the defense establishment and to stop defense fraud. Even when Ronald Reagan signed the amendments into law in 1986, that was really the focus. But in the 90s and since, the, the focus has really turned to healthcare because mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons, but one, that's where the money is now, right? There's a lot mm-hmm. of money in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, two, if uh, you work in the healthcare industry, you can walk across the street and get another job or change cities or go to a different hospital or go to a different practice. There's a lot of ways to be in the healthcare industry 
and being blackballed is a lot more difficult than if you're working in the defense industry on a missile systems project, right? There aren't many other jobs you can go get. Um, and to some extent, in fairness, the, the defense industry has cleaned itself up because I think of the liabilities they were finding under this law. But yeah. so healthcare is where a lot of it is right now. And you know, when you talked about money, I, I had a client whose job was to help a hospital find more money. And so she would educate doctors on how to properly write up um, a diagnosis so that when the coder, the biller would look at that chart, they would say, oh, I can also bill for this. I can also bill for that very legitimately. And so she would go through these charts and she would say, hey, we're missing X, Y, and Z because you didn't describe it correctly. And the biller missed what you were trying to say. And that was her job. Well, in the course of her job of helping the hospital make more money, she sometimes found, oh, we're doing this wrong. We're billing this the wrong way. And so she would say, hey, uh, we need to stop doing this. And invariably, she would find that the upper echelon finance people would say, well, just keep focusing on the stuff that we're doing that we need to do better. Don't worry about that. And she would say, no, no, we need to do all of it right. We can make a whole lot more money here, but we need to do it right. And um, she eventually would, would blow the whistle on those companies um, because they wouldn't do it right. And they refused to do the right thing. Um, I represented her in a couple of suits. And um, you, know, you were asking about how long it took. Well, there were times when she worked at a place for three or four years because she loved being there. And she kept thinking, I'm fixing this. I'm, I'm, getting, I'm, I'm, I'm getting some traction here. Um, and then there was a place she stayed three months because she saw the handwriting on the wall really quickly and had all the evidence she needed of what was going on. Wow. So it varies on, on the journey and, and how much you're willing to put up with before you, uh, before you, you know, pull the cord and say, okay, I'm out of here and, and you're in trouble. Yeah. She was the one you were telling me she's like a repeat whistleblower. Is that the one you were telling me about? It was. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Has your industry or just your practice grown in, in, in the years since you uh, established in, in 2000? Um, you know, I started off by myself and really had like one other lawyer. And so I guess we've grown because we, I know that there's three of us now. Yeah. Um, but this, what you find is that the number of cases that are filed every year is really very small, sort of between five and 700 cases a year. And that may sound like a lot, but if you think about how many cases are filed um, in federal court around the country normally, um, it's nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. If you think about there's being 50 states and you got 500 lawsuits, it's 10 per state. It's just, it's just nothing. And um, so the, the, the amount of fraud out there has, I think, grown as, as more dollars are out there, but the number of whistleblower lawsuits has not. Um, and there are very, very few firms that are doing kind of what we're doing, yeah. um, which is only focusing on whistleblowers. A lot of firms do other things and also do whistleblower cases. Um, but I, th I think the reality is that there's only so many people who are willing to step up and do the right thing. And most people are just keeping their head down, shielding their eyes and just say, not my problem. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break and talk more with Mitch when we come back. And when we do come back, we're going to talk about some of the most famous whistleblower cases we've seen through the years over the last 20 years. And I want to get Mitch's take on that. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Single socks are so annoying, aren't they? Especially when you're sure you put two socks together in the wash, only to find one of them has pieced out somewhere 
in between the washing and drying cycle. But your problems are now solved with Soulmate Socks. They are magnetic socks that stay together in the laundry so you're never left with lost and single socks. Knitted from bamboo, they are the softest socks you'll have in your drawer. They're antifungal, antimicrobial, and they're breathable. So when you need your socks to stay together, grab a pair of Soulmate Socks, where every sock has a soulmate. Shop online today at soulmatesocks.com. That's S-O-L-E-M-A-T-E-S-O-X.com. All right, everybody, welcome back. Before the break, we were talking about uh, the industry of whistleblowing and whistleblower law and uh, the False Claims Act and and the cases or the number of cases that um, historically have been uh, uh, related to this this topic. So I want to talk a little bit about, um, Mitch, you mentioned before the break that there are some cases that you turn away. What would it take for you to, to turn a case away? or turn a client away and say they don't have enough evidence or information or it's not significant enough? I would say we turn away most, most of the cases that come our way. Um, you know, sometimes it's a client who doesn't understand the difference between jaywalking and murder, like we talked about. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's a client who doesn't have evidence of the wrongdoing. Sometimes it's kind of small. Um, sometimes it's handled in a different way. You know, getting a private lawyer involved um, under the False Claims Act also involves the judiciary. It involves the Justice Department, literally the Attorney General in Washington, D.C. It involves the U.S. Attorney's Office and the, and the district where you file it. So a lot of resources. Um, but sometimes it may be better that they just file a complaint um, with an agency and, and, and pursue it in an administrative means in sort of a, a lower volume effort um, than, than trying to use the False Claims Act. And um, there are some people who we work through the risks. Um, we do that risk assessment that I talked about. And, you know, I'll tell them, I don't think it's worth the risk to your career to do mm-hmm. this. You know, I'll give you a very good example. Physicians, doctors, if you're a doctor and you're going to blow the whistle on your colleagues, let's say, um, your referral sources from other lawyers, from other doctors probably dries up. And if you're young in your career and you're just starting out, that's probably deadly to your career. And, and so, you know, if it's a $100 million case, we think it's a great case and it can set you for life, well, maybe it's worth doing it. But if it's a small fraud, uh, it's probably not worth doing it. And maybe it's worth reporting, you know, by some other means. Yeah. So we've seen over the last 20 years, whistleblowers bringing down some pretty significant firms. Enron is probably the most famous in the last 20 years. Everybody remembers that and everybody remembers their demise. And um, it was one person. So I want to talk about that one. And then uh, leading up to uh, most recently Theranos with Elizabeth Holmes and and, uh, her conviction on, I think it was three counts of four that she's, she was charged with, but um, the whistleblower in that, in that case had seen, you know, what was going on at the company and he wasn't the only one. So let's first talk about Enron because we're in Texas. <laughs> that was in 20, that was in 2000. Um, uh, yeah, 2001, Sharon Watkins was the uh, whistleblower in that case. So from what you remember, what, what's your, what was your take on, on the Enron case? And is that one of the most significant ones in, in our recent history? I think it is. Um, certainly people remember it uh, the most. I think that maybe in recent history, maybe the whistleblower people remember most is the one who was part of the Trump impeachment proceedings having to do with Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Um, We had a national security whistleblower, if you remember, but 
Um, one of the things that's interesting about all of these sort of notorious or famous cases is that they are not the kinds of whistleblowers who can succeed under the False Claims Act because there is no fraud being committed against the government, okay? So with Enron, uh, it was a fraud against investors. And one of the things that case led to was Congress passing a law that allows, that allows the SEC to have a whistleblower program. So the False Claims Act is for really financial fraud against the government, but the SEC now has a separate program where a whistleblower can file a, about a securities violation that their company is committing, which is really what Enron was. It was lying to investors. It was filing false documents with their, in their SEC filings. Um, certainly, there were other parties that were being ripped off, but for the most part, it was this house of cards they built in convincing investors to up their stock price and make a lot of money for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so at the time, that was really not, there was no way for a private attorney to help a whistleblower like Sharon, Sharon Watkins, Sharon Watkins um, go ahead and bring some sort of lawsuit. She was kind of on her own. And, you know, when the, when the congressional investigators came knocking, she was, she was there to tell them what was going on. And she certainly marched in into the C-suite to tell her CEO what was going on in a very brave manner because she didn't have those kinds of legislative or statutory paths to, to get any incentive for herself to blow the whistle. Um, so the world has changed in part because of that case. And I remember, I remember at the time when it came out thinking, oh, that's not my kind of whistleblower. Well, now it would be, right? Now, it, now that kind of whistleblower certainly could be because we have a program under the SEC. And also, I guess the other one would be the, the other big one is the Internal Revenue Service. The IRS has a separate whistleblower program. Yeah. And, and because it wasn't that significant at that time, I mean, she is, you know, she has, she now teaches classes. Um, she's been featured in, you know, a, a bunch of articles about what it took for her to actually do it because it, like I said, it wasn't common for somebody to do that at the time and, to, and for a company that was so significant like Enron. So just from like case study, what, what do you think, what do you think it took for her to be brave enough to do that? It took someone who has a really strong moral compass, mm-hmm. right? Because her bosses were telling her not to do it. Right. The reason she had to go to, to Enron CEO Ken Lay and say to him, let me show you what's going on, is because her immediate bosses told her, you know, to shut it um, and to not pursue it. And she just continued to dig and continued to push it. Yeah. Um, and it's it's very... It takes an unusual person to do that, but it goes back to someone who says, I can't not do this, right? right. My, my code of ethics, my code of morality will not allow me to continue to participate in this. And I want to expose it because we can't keep hurting other people. Yeah. Let's talk about Facebook. Facebook, uh, that's 2021. And I think we're still seeing the repercussions of that. I mean, they've, you know, been on, con- on Capitol Hill, um, the whistleblower in that case um, pre- presented to Congress, Francis Haugen. Um, what's your take on, on that one? The lesson in all these cases is that without someone on the inside to shine a light on these practices, they go undiscovered and unknown. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I guess another... Um, I'm going to blank on his name now because, of course, you know, we're, we're doing this recording. But the whistleblower <laughs> who, who uncovered 
the cache of government documents and who Assange, who's now living, who's now living overseas, right? Right. Um, he, I mean, whether you think he's a hero or not, right? You may think he's a horrible person and is a traitor because he revealed these top secret documents. Um, and I totally understand that point of view. But without him revealing that information, we don't have it. The Panama Papers, right? Right. Um, yep. Watergate. Yep. If someone doesn't step forward and, and feed this information, I'm an insider. Let me tell you what's going on, really. The, the, never, it never gets discovered by the public. Whistleblowers are absolutely critical to our, our way of life and, and to making things better in the world around us. Yeah. The, uh, the Theranos case is very interesting. I watched that documentary about Elizabeth Holmes. And what was interesting to me is her personality, but also all the things that she tried to do to cover, cover up the, uh, the, there were lies and then cover up the lies. Like she knew that things weren't working. She knew the machines weren't working. She went through and sold them anyway. And then during the case, she pretended like she didn't know what was going on in the company. So it's like very interesting watching something like that unfold and being on the inside of the company, knowing that what you're trying to sell the public does not work and it gives faulty information. And it's, it was, a, a life and death situation for a lot of people who were relying on the technology um, to tell them what was wrong with them. So that one is very interesting to me. Obviously, it's, you know, it's the, 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 the legal part of it is, is still very new and very fresh. But just in, in the culture in Silicon Valley and what we've learned about the culture there, that failure is not an option and succeeding in Silicon Valley is very important. And when you get investors and all these people are involved in trying to make your company work and build your company and then the valuation and all, all of those pieces, I, I can't imagine being in that, that pressure environment of knowing all these things are happening. You're trying to please all these people um, and, and knowing that what you're going to do is going to blow up and destroy all of that. It's, it's a very interesting thing to me. Someone like, someone like Elizabeth Holmes, I don't think started off planning to defraud people, right? But she was driven by all those pressures that you're talking about to try to make sure she was getting it done. And, and it is a cultural problem, right? It is, wow. it is a societal problem. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the things that we talk about is, is everybody says to their child when they're young, you know, uh, that's not your business. Mind your own business. And we're taught culturally to mind our own business, to be loyal to people, to, to just, you know, be, to, to respect our elders, that kind of thing. And to, 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 to not raise our hand and say, hey, there's something wrong here. Now, you have to figure out, again, whether it's jaywalking or murder, right? But if you think it's, if it's very serious, then we need to reward people for raising their hand. Yeah. And the problem is that even those whistleblowers... One of the reasons Sharon Watkins has made a career speaking and teaching is because no one's going to hire her. Yeah. Nobody wants to work with a whistleblower. You admire her. You love what she did. But if she's in the office next to you, aren't you always wondering what she's, what she's going to report about you? Yeah. Now, that's, not, that's not who she is. That's not what she's doing. But people worry about that. And nobody wants to work with the whistleblower. And so even the people who love the whistleblower don't really want to give them another job. Yeah. So it's a very, it's a very lonely experience. It's a very costly experience. 
Um, and in the Theranos example, right, um, one of the main whistleblowers was a kid in his 20s. Yeah. Right. Who went working for the company? Yeah. Tyler um, Schultz. Tyler Schultz. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whose grandfather was George Schultz. Right. Um, former secretary of state and who was on the board of Theranos. Right. And I mean, maybe that was the in how he got an interview and how he got the job. But he got there and here's this, you know, basically a young guy who says something ain't right. And no one will believe him and no one will listen to him. And so he takes his concerns, you know, to the government. He, he pursues a different path and says, look, here's the fraud. Um, and that, that, takes, that takes a lot of guts, especially when you go to your grandfather and your grandfather tells you to shut up. Right. Which is what his powerful grandfather right. did. Son. Right. Yep. And him in particular. I mean, I, I think about... You know, when when they know something is not right, working in the company and then going home every day and sitting with that and living with that and not being able to sleep, knowing what you know and waking up again and doing that day after day after day. And then when you're not believed, that is a horrible experience when you're not believed by people you expect to believe you because you are a reliable person that that. That seems very significant. And I think it goes back to anybody who's facing a fear or fate, you know, getting ready to take a jump or a leap of faith or do something that they're nervous about, right? What really helps is having a support network in some way, right? Right. And I don't know what Tyler Schultz's support network was. Maybe it was friends he confided in. Um, and a lot of times, honestly, you know, it's, it's that counselor role as a lawyer um, with my clients because they may have been ostracized and they may not have anyone to talk to this about. And by the way, once these cases are filed and they're under seal, you can't talk about them. You can't, you shouldn't even tell your spouse that you filed a case. Yeah. So you're leading this double life where you're talking to your lawyer and you know, this case is going on and you want to scream from the rooftops. Guess what I did? This company's a fraud. And, and you, you have to remain silent during that period. And it's really hard. And so, you know, to some extent, your legal team um, becomes your friend because this is the group you can talk to about this fraud and, and who's going to help you get through it and who's going to be your support network. Um, but but having, having that support is really important. And I think anybody who's going through this, if they can find some anchor, some way to anchor their mental health and somebody to talk to about it is going gonna, is gonna to be just tremendously important. Yeah. And by the way, they should also talk to a legal professional and find out, is this really significant? Am, am I, am I on the right track? Is this not as significant? Um, I had a guy recently call me and he wanted, he worked for a, he worked for a municipality and he had discovered some things in their internal audit side that he wanted to blow up. And I told him that what he was complaining about was not something the government was going to get all upset about. And I actually talked to some, it was an IRS issue. And I went and talked to some agents in the government and, they confirmed, yeah, that's that's not good, but you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna literally, you know, make a federal case out of it. Yeah. Um, and so I think he said that's really helpful. Thank you. He quit his job and went work somewhere else. Yeah. What's been your most successful outcome in your years of practice? And and successful in a sense, not just a singularly, like compound it from a financial standpoint a moral standpoint, like all the things that are components of the, of the success of a, of the outcome of a case. So 
what I really find most rewarding, I mean, it's nice to get paid at the end of the day and have a big payday, but um, that pays the bills and it doesn't necessarily lead to reward. And what I really have found most rewarding is those clients who just have that moral compass. Um, I talked about the guy who, who did this because of his children. Yeah. Uh, working with him, he's still a friend. And his case resolved 12, 13, 14 years ago at this point. We still keep in touch. And he, he was just a tremendous person. And working with him and seeing his case be successful. Um, and in fact, it was not only successful because the, the company was put out of business, the fraud was stopped, the government joined the case. Um, it was also successful because there was a legal challenge to the result. And uh, the Court of Appeals of the Fifth Circuit over in New Orleans wrote an opinion that upheld the legal principle. And that legal principle has been cited over and over and over again in Fifth Circuit jurisdictions, or in Fifth Circuit law, and certainly in, in cases all across the country. Um, and every once in a while, when I see an opinion where it's, it's quoted, I send it to my, to my ex-client. And I say, see, you're, you're, you're still the gift that keeps on giving. And I think that really means a lot to him that you know, he stood up for something and the principles that he stood up for are still being used today um, in, in our legal jurisprudence. So that that's one that sticks out for me. Yeah. Um, in that case, that was battery technology, right? That was that was yeah. a battery technology. It was a, a small company that was trying to find a better battery and was getting um, was getting grants from the government, relatively small grants, you know, four or five hundred thousand dollars. But they were getting a bunch of them and they were signing attestations saying, oh, we're only doing this work for you. But they were recycling their research two or three times or four times among different government agencies um, and getting paid for the same work over and over again. And sometimes dummying up their results and lying about their capabilities. Um, the client I told you who I've represented in multiple cases, um, rep she, she also is really, she was outstanding in her field. This is a woman who... If she threw her resume out there, you know, she was being snatched up because she was so good at what she did in helping what, what they, what euphemistically is called revenue enhancement mm. um, for the hospital, right? Make more money. Um, and she was so good at that. And, um, you know, she's, she's a pariah now. She can't work because even if she throws her in, she still, she can still go and get to the second round of interviews, right? But after the second round of interviews, they start Googling oh, what do we know about this person? Right. And suddenly her name comes up as having been a whistleblower and, you know, suddenly the callback stopped. So, um, you know, it's, it's very rewarding to know that we were successful for her um, because she can't, she can't work in the industry anymore. She yeah. can't work in healthcare anymore because, because she, is, she is, you know, she's persona non grata because of her whistleblower. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's a very good experience. I had, I had a client who, was a was a, a low paid clerk um, for a hospital, and he identified a pretty significant fraud. He went and reported to his supervisors and said, you know, they told him to shut up, just go back to his desk and do what he did. And he did, and then he filed a case. And he was he uh, was uh, after he was done, he was interviewed by the paper about it, and he said, I went to my supervisors, I told them all this, and after that revelation came out, a bunch of people got fired. Because, of course, the people who were left at the company said, oh, we had no idea. We didn't know anything about this fraud. This is terrible. Oh, this is horrible. Let's pay money and get out of it. And then they found out later that he had reported to all these people. And so, you know, the board acted and fired a bunch of people. 
Yeah. So there are those kinds of victories along the way that, that feel very good. Um, and I, I've had some cases that I, I love my clients and uh, the result didn't come out very well. And I, I still consider those, you know, sort of giving a voice to the client's allegations. Um, I still consider those to be, to be pretty meaningful cases, even though the results weren't what we would have liked them to be. Yeah. Um, and, and we don't work. I think, I think almost always my clients are right, um, but we don't always win. And we're always on the side of right, right? We're, we're alleging something on behalf of the government. And there are times when the government decides not to pursue it. Um, they think it's too close to call. It may be the subject of hand-rigging at an agency like Medicare, um, whether they want to enforce this rule, whether they like this case. Um, you know, just like the Supreme Court, you know, doesn't take every case that comes its way. They pick and choose what they want to hear. Well, sometimes Medicare does that too. Um, they decide, is this a fraud we want to pursue? Is this big enough for us to get ourselves involved in? Do we have enough resources right now? We're stretched kind of thin. We've got other cases going on. There's a lot of different things that drive um, government priorities at times. And so just because we're not successful doesn't mean that there wasn't something wrong going on. Yeah. Can you tell me about any cases you're working on now without divulging too much information? <laughs> um, I, I can. So, um, you know, these cases sometimes are resolved uh, in three to five years. And I have one that's been dragging on for almost 14. It's really more of a collection case where the government right. got a $30 million judgment against a company that was um, was a laboratory company that was basically getting paid for being a travel company. Um, they were making 80% of their revenues from travel reimbursements to send their phlebotomists or people that draw your blood um, to nursing homes, to draw nursing home patients' blood. And the rules say you bill a, you get paid about a dollar a mile for your, for your phlebotomist to go to the nursing home and come back to the lab. And if you draw five people's blood, you got to divide it five ways. Well, they weren't dividing it five ways. They were billing it basically five times as much. And then they were drawing blood for people in different cities. And they were trying to get round trip airfare for, you know, blood that was drawn in Houston and, and the lab was in, uh, in Austin, let's say. And they were trying to get that mileage from Houston to Austin for every one of these charges. So $30 million judgment, which was just a tip of the iceberg of the fraud that was being committed but the company really doesn't have the money. And so they're chasing the individuals who ran the company um, and trying to grab that, those dollars. Um, I have another case right now. It's, it's a national healthcare case. Um, we have allegations against like, you know, 40 different hospitals. Um, and I, I think the government's very interested in that case. And I think they're gonna find that the overbilling that we're alleging is, is accurate. And they've got a lot of agents, and a lot of resources working on the case. Um, I have, uh, I have a couple of healthcare cases that are also that are also percolating out there. Um, some are overbilling. I have a tax case that we filed with the IRS that also has national implications for uh, businesses that are hiding cash and not uh, paying employees as, as employees, but paying them you know on the side. Um, and so uh, it also has immigration aspects to it. Um, we also have a case that involves uh, visa violations. Um, because false documentation is being submitted to the government to obtain visas. So it, it can be very varied in terms of wow. uh, the kinds of stuff that, um, that we get involved in. And, you know, you learn, you learn, a, 
you learn a little about a lot or a lot about a little, but you learn a lot about a lot of esoteric government programs and um, things that you never thought the government pays for, but, but they do. Yeah. Um, and so I would, you know, I would, I would really, I would tell people who are thinking about this, who are thinking about how, how should I do this? I saw something wrong at my workplace. I know someone who's ripping off the IRS on their taxes. They should just get some advice. They should talk to somebody to see if they have, you know, support for what they're doing or if what they're doing even makes sense. Um, you know, they should always get out of the situation if it's, if it's bad for their mental health and it's bad for their, yeah. their day-to-day life. But whether they should do something bigger, they should, they should try to find that support and get, get that advice. Yeah. What are, so that, that's a good segue to two other things you would advise um, somebody who's thinking about it. And, and, and the, the, the part of fear and how significant fear is and how much of a part it plays in not just the decision, but the entire process, the, the, the before, the current, and then the after of the consequences that somebody may face, um, you know, after it's all said and done and, and the fear that they have to think about, you know, when they think about their future. So I'd love two other pieces of advice. And then if you could just summarize how much of a part fear is in the entire situation and going through the whole thing. So the fear issue, I think up front is, is very fair and real. And so it's, it is assessing that risk and figuring out, can I do this? Can I not do this? What are the risks to me and to my family and to my livelihood? Um, and that's going to be very individualized based on the company, based on what it is you know, what information you have. Um, and, and I think everybody should have a healthy dose of fear, right? Before you do something that, you, that you're not familiar with and that is potentially, has potentially negative consequences for you, you should, you should approach that with a healthy dose of, of fear and skepticism. Yeah. So um, I don't think that's an irrational, an irrational fear. Um, during the process, you know, a lot of this is done under seal. So during the process, I think you get to take a breather. And um, to some extent, those fears go away. After the process, if you're successful, the lingering issue is what are you going to do now? Because you may not be hireable. You may have got another job and your current employer is fine continuing to employ you. Um, but if you try to go out on the job market, it may be difficult. Yeah. Um, and you may, you may have some problems with that. And so hopefully your case is big enough that maybe gives you a little bit of financial cushion that you can, that you can lean back on um, and deal with those kinds of problems. Um, as, as far as advice goes, um, I think what I, would, what I would tell people is this is a heroic act and whistleblowers help justice reach places where it would never be. Mm-hmm. And there is, there is a lot of intrinsic reward in that alone. Um, and I think whistleblowers, they, 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 they feel that intrinsic reward they are motivated by doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. And not everybody is. And so I would encourage people to to sort of really see the value 
of doing the right thing. And knowing that maybe by doing the right thing, you may end up doing very well down the road because there may be, there may be a reward, there may be a bounty that comes to you because of your actions. Yeah. Um, but that, that's, not, that's not guaranteed and it's not gonna make the road any easier. And I think most whistleblowers at the end of the day say, I would have done it again, regardless of how it turned out. Yeah. Because they need to live with themselves and they don't want that burden of knowing that when I saw something wrong, I walked away. You like the guy who's running into the burning building, right? Imagine, I mean, most of them say, Oh, I just, I just, everybody would have done this. Well, suppose you didn't suppose you looked at the burning building and just walked away and someone died and you have to live with that, right? You have to keep that in your, in your psyche the rest of your life. And it has its own cost. Yeah. So, so that would be, I mean, that would be one, one thing that I would say. Um, but the other would be that, you know, these are, these are David versus Goliath issues. Yeah. And um, although David fought Goliath um, by himself, you know, you don't have to today. Right. And so find partners, find support, um, you know, find, find, find a way to bring down the giant. Um, and whether that's by developing evidence you know, um, not relying on hearsay. Oh, I heard this in the hallway. Well, that's that's not that's not really a good way to build your whistleblower complaint or to go running to your boss. You know, be meticulous in improving your claims and identifying your claims and supporting your claims, because that's how you get people to join your team. That's yeah. how you get the government to join your team. So be deliberate in what you're doing, and that's also a way, by the way, to reduce the risk and to um, reduce the fear of moving forward because you have developed a claim and you have developed it in a way that can convince other people and the righteousness of what, of what you're claiming. Yeah. This has been so good. And really, I hope it encourages people who are thinking about being a whistleblower or some maybe who are going through the process of r- right now of some kind of case or complaint or lawsuit or whatever it is. They just needed an extra boost to know that they are doing the right thing. Whatever the case, I hope that we see more heroes <laughs> come forward. Um, and if not, you can always, you can always call Mitch, right? <laughs> His and website. And I'll tell you one thing else, um, Kat, let, if, if you don't mind, I will give you a couple of um, whistleblower podcasts that yes. sort of specialize in dealing with whistleblowers. Yes. Um, and you can just put them in the notes attached, attached to this podcast. Sure. Um, yes. But there's, a, there's an organization in uh, Washington that really is a nonprofit that helps assist whistleblowers, and particularly in the area that I focus on. It's called Taxpayers Against Fraud. Um, they have a whistleblower podcast called Fraud in America. Okay. They interview whistleblowers. They talk about prominent cases. Um, and there's um, there's another whistleblower podcast called The Whistleblower Revolution that is uh, done by a whistleblower. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's just, if anybody's interested in this and they're interested in the stories, um, which is another way, by the way, to make yourself comfortable with this process. Um, you know, I can get you those details and you can put them in the, in the notes for this podcast. Absolutely. Thank you. There's also a National Whistleblower Center, which I learned about through doing research for this, um, this episode. Um, so that is another resource. And then, of course, you can find Mitch at blowthewhistle.com. 
That's very easy <laughs> to remember. Thank you so much, Mitch. This has been so good and so eye-opening. Mitch Kreinler who we've been talking to, who's now a new friend of mine. Um, I feel like I'm part of the family now. <laughs> Mitch so now, love, you know, Eric years ago. Oh, true. it's so good. Thank well, you so much. I love what so you're much. doing, Kat. I love what you're doing. I think you're helping so many people out there. Um, and just being realizing that other people have these same situations and these same kinds of fears. And so, you know, keep it going. Yes. Well, and if nothing else, whatever you're facing today, whether it's this becoming a whistleblower or anything else, my encouragement always is at the end of every episode to just say fuck fear and go and do it. So thank you, Mitch. Thank you all of you for listening today. I'll have notes uh, to all of the resources that Mitch mentioned in the notes and then also at my website, acontinue.com. Thank you for listening today. We will see you next time. Coming up on a new episode of Fuck Fear. Believe it or not, we are coming up on one full year of the Fuck Fear podcast. This year has flown by. I am so proud of how far it's come. I didn't have any expectations at the beginning, except that I wanted to spend time not only talking about fears, but solving and figuring out solutions to fears and also spending time really talking about the why behind the fears that we have discussed and covered on this podcast. Season three is wrapping. At this point, we have done, uh, let's see, about 40 episodes, a little more than 40 episodes. And um, it, it has been amazing, really. I think every single person, and I have said this on many occasions, every single person who has taken the time to not only download, but to take the time and sit and listen to each of the episodes or however many episodes you've listened to. This will be a good time to stop and go back and listen to any that you may have missed. All of them I think are fantastic. So the next week, we will be talking about some of my favorite episodes. We'll also talk about to celebrate the one year, the top three episodes of the entirety and the life of the podcast. So make sure you come back and learn which three have been the top. I'm also going to be doing some giveaways on my website or from my website and also on my social media. So if you are not following on if you're not following me on social media, this is a good time to do so. You can find me at Katenya, C-A-T-E-N-Y-A. That is on Instagram. I'm also on Facebook, although I don't, I'm not on Facebook as often as I used to be. I'm, I'm more active on Instagram and my website. My website is Katenya.com. Thank you to my amazing team of people who help me pull this together every single week. Trevor, who handles all of my post-production and editing. Lydia, who handles all of my graphics and imagery. And my amazing, beautiful cousin, Johnny, who is the master behind the music that you hear, the theme music, every single week. And all the other people who have uh, advised me, who have given me insight, tips, all of those people. 
um, Scout Sobel over at Scout's Agency. I had a conversation with her at the beginning of this before I actually launched the podcast. She was gracious enough to give me so many tips. I thank you for just sharing your insight. I so appreciate that. And it doesn't fall lightly on me. And then to all the fans and listeners, thank you for listening every single week. You have been amazing. You have helped grow this podcast. You have helped raise awareness about this podcast. And I thank you so much for coming on this journey. You know that it started from a place of um, just wanting to have conversations about fear. And if you listen to the evolution of the podcast, the very first episode, this project came out of a narcissistic relationship that I was in. It's essentially turned into my second book because fear is a tactic that narcissists use to keep their victims under control. And so I have broken out of that. I am liberated (laughs) because of my bravery and my courage. And I hope that this podcast has made an impact and made a difference in your life and help you overcome any of the fears that you faced And I would love to hear from you guys about how this podcast has made a difference and how it's helped you overcome any of the fears that you have faced in the last year. Please reach out to me on Instagram. You can easily find me, um, like I said, on, on any other social media platform. Feel free to leave a comment. I would love that and also leave a review. And then make sure if you want to win something from our boutique, our Fuck Fear Podcast Boutique, be sure to go to my website, getinia.com, visit the store um, and see what items are there. Check Instagram for giveaways that we're going to be doing. The one year comes up on February 22nd, which is also my oldest son's birthday. So I like to do things that are very intentional and very meaningful and purposeful. And so celebrating the life of this podcast along with the life of my firstborn son has been a joy. Thank you again. I hope this has given you the courage to say fuck fear every single day. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. If you feel led, I'd love for you to write a review, check out other episodes. And as always, thank you for listening.